Father, we confess with the hymn writer today, for every believer in this room, it is truly for each of us, well with our souls. For in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, Christ Jesus, our Lord, who was born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those of us, all of mankind, in fact, were under the law, and of His own, He elected by His sovereign decree those who would be united to Him by adoption, whereby the Spirit of Christ indwells us, where we are now enabled to cry, Abba, Father, grafted in, into the seed and lineage of Abraham, Lord, welcomed into the family of Almighty God, so we are no longer slaves to sin, but sons and daughters of the Most High, and heirs to all the covenant promises assured to Christ our covenant head, our covenant head for those who are in Him. Fathers, we realize these glorious truths in the pages of your Holy Scripture. I pray that you would write them indelibly upon the tables of our hearts. Remind us, Lord Jesus, that you prepare a way of salvation in your perfect time. And for those to whom it is applied, it is the ground and assurance of their future hope eternally. Father, I pray through the proclamation of your word this day that you would draw the lost also unto repentance and faith. There is only one power whereby the heart of man can be changed from his love and dwelling in sin unto a desire for the holiness of God and a change from his disposition from one of depravity to one of faith in Christ as Lord and then the fruit of holiness working through his life by sanctifying means. There is only one way and it is through your word, Lord Jesus, your spirit's use of this record I pray it would change hearts as it is proclaimed this day, encouraging and equipping your saints, drawing the lost to their only hope in Christ, and gathering us as your people at your table this day, whereby we are reminded that the shed blood of Christ our Lord and His broken body is the very means whereby fellowship is restored with the Holy God. Thank you, Lord, for these things that you have given us today to shore up our faith, to strengthen and equip us, your church. I pray that you would do so for your glory this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning, saints and members of the household of God. It is certainly our privilege today to open up the Scriptures and to consider under two adjectives, powerful and priceless, which is also the title of our message, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you turn with me to Galatians 4? 8 through 20 today. Galatians 4, 8 through 20 will be our text. Today is Communion Sunday. So as we gather at the Lord's table, we, or monthly we've been going through the book of Galatians. This leads us to the center of chapter 4. The aim of this morning's message is that the sharp words of correction that Paul uses to, cha- to address the Galatians would serve to keep our affections as saints and members of the household of God as believers, even this day, as the church of Jesus Christ, even this day grounded, that the sharp words of correction for the church of Galatians would serve to ground our affections in Christ. That means our desires, our preferences, the things that we consider most important and priority in our lives. The title, as I mentioned, of this morning's sermon is Powerful and Priceless. Paul emphasizes in many ways in our text today how powerful and priceless the gospel is, and he corrects, he chastises, he rebukes the Galatians because they had forgotten the power and value of the gospel. 
And so we find our text today. Would you stand with me out of reverence for the reading of God's Word this day as you're able? And let us consider these scriptures together. Listen as the Word of God is proclaimed in your hearing, Galatians 4, 8 through 20. Here we have the infallible scriptures. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to become once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Verse 12, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know, it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you. But for no good purpose, they want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, verse 30, 20, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Today, under the title Powerful and Priceless, we have by way of contrast the mention of the weak and worthless elementary principles that were tempting the Galatian church to leave the ground foundation, the assurance, the hope, the truth, the tried and true message of the gospel, and to listen to false voices, false teachers, other uh, claims to truth. Among them, this main idea, by way of background, was the false teaching that was prevalent at the time, that works of the law, particularly circumcision, are necessary for salvation. There are other church communions today, Roman Catholicism comes to mind, who are guilty of this same error. They say, yes, God's grace is necessary for salvation, but it is not all that we need. It is not sufficient. You must add to the grace of God what you can do, keeping certain aspects of the law, and by this, your salvation is assured. Brothers and sisters, let us heed the warning of Paul against these kinds of teachings. Let us hear the unequivocal gospel, the unadulterated truth, that the ground and assurance of our salvation is faith alone in Christ alone. And this is a message that is needful for every age. Why? Because as glory thieves, mankind seeks to rob at least a bit of credit for themselves and to take upon themselves the mantle of, I did this or that, a little bit, I added to, I am partially responsible for. No, Christ alone, through His work on Calvary alone, is responsible for our salvation. This is the basic gospel truth that Paul emphasizes, and he brings a rebuke along with it, because believing anything less than this Exclusive claim is extremely dangerous. Our passage today features the Apostle Paul 
from two dispositions, if you will. First, we see Paul in classic and rare form. He is consummately in command of logical argumentation. We see Paul in verses 8 through 11 wearing his lawyer hat, if you will. Paul could uh, certainly make a great, persuasive, rhetorically powerful, and systematically sound argument, and so he does. But this isn't all that Paul was. Paul was also very closely, personally, and passionately connected to those he called his own spiritual children. And so the second portion of our text, we witness his personal and passionate concern for those whom he had poured his life and teaching into. For Paul, ministry was never just an abstraction, a mere exchange or sparring of intellectual truths where one brings his proposition and his interlocutor, the guy he's debating with, brings his own, and the two engage in a mere scholarly or intellectual exercise through powers of persuasion. No, Paul was arguing through tears, if you will. Paul was arguing with a passionate and corrective at times, but longing fatherly love for those he considered his spiritual children. He compared his labors of evangelism and discipleship to the pains of childbirth itself. Verse 19 of our text, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. The mothers in this room particularly know the anguish of childbirth, but they also know that maternal connection, that inseparable bond between mother and child, and how you grieve over a child who is uh, in danger, either physically through hardship or in a dangerous position or is lost to the, the world. A mother who loves her children and loves the Lord knows this kind of pain or anguish, but so does Paul. He had labored, he had travailed, he had experienced this anguish of pouring his heart, his soul, and his ministry and teaching into these, his spiritual children, and now uh, they were threatened by false teachers, so naturally he is upset. Furthermore, we glean gospel priority from these verses as well. We sense the devastating consequences of dismissing or despising the primacy of the message of faith in Christ alone even as we are reminded through Paul's corrective words of the power and value of the means of grace which bear the treasures of life-transforming truth. Paul is calling the church to value, to prioritize the means of grace. What are these? We often refer to the means of grace. By that we mean the preaching of God's Word, the reading of His Word on your own devotional time, We mean the gathering of the assembly in this place of worship this day, the fellowship that we share in Christ, praying and bearing our hearts before the Lord, connecting with God our Father in these kinds of ways. These are examples of means that God gives us, ways in which the strength and the value of the gospel are realized and reinforced in the hearts and lives of believers. And therefore, these are the most important things in our life and ought to be eclipsed or replaced or in competition with nothing else. We may learn from the wandering affections of the Galatian church not to take our most precious possessions in Christ for granted. May we not take our most precious possessions in Christ for granted. Some of you own guns. Where do you keep them? Likely in a safe under lock and key. Guns are dangerous. Guns have value. Thus, we keep them 
under uh, the, in this uh, you know, means of safekeeping. Some of you might have jewels, something precious to you, like a wedding ring with a, you know, whatever carat diamond upon it, ladies. That ring seldom leaves the security of your finger because it's precious to you. It represents something of value. Itself probably has intrinsic value. If you have jewels or gold or you deposited a large sum of labor in what represents those things, like these rare things of beauty and value, you keep them safe, you treasure them. And Paul's point is, how much more ought we guard the deposit of the riches of the gospel against intruders, even intruders in our own souls, false teaching that would steer us away from the tried and true and lead us off the path of the ground assurance and the glory of Christ alone in establishing for us the beauty and the power of the gospel. Paul gives a two-part rebuke in Galatians. That's our main heading today under two main points today, or followed by two main points today. Paul's two-part rebuke of the Galatians. His first part is a principled argument and appeal. An argument from principles. Principles of the world, which are weak and worthless, versus well, you could say the principles of the gospel implicitly, which are powerful and priceless. The second portion, that's verses 8 through 11, by the way. The second portion is Paul's personal entreaty. He pleads with them on a personal, relational level as his children, he their spiritual father. He pleads with them to hear his words and his rebuke, and that would be verses 12 through 20. Under principled argument and appeal, we have these following points at least. Paul tells the church, he reminds them that non-sons are slaves, that you are either a son of God by virtue of your spiritual adoption, or you are a slave to worldly and worthless principles. That's point one under this principled argument. Secondly, he tells us that all idolatry, all alternatives, all notions of self-sovereignty, if you will, are a complete delusion. They are, in his words, no gods at all. Thirdly, he makes an argument from the nature of our faith. And finally, he makes an argument from the nature of the alternative. So here we turn to our text in more detail today. Verse 8, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Non-sons are slaves. Slaves to make-believe gods. Slaves, as he goes on to say, to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. Now, this is in contrast to our situation, our status in Christ. Notice in verse 6, and because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, two words, one Aramaic and Hebrew, Abba, the second pater in the Greek, Father. The Spirit of His Son in our hearts cries, Abba, Father so that you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Paul is reminding this church of the privileges, the promises, the riches, the power, and the value of what they have in Christ. Who in this whole earth can say truly that they are the children of God? Who can say with sincerity, God is my Father, Abba, Father, I am yours. Only those who are in Christ, only those who understand the gospel is exclusively found in its power and value in the work of Christ on Calvary. Only these have the privilege of saying, I am no longer a slave. I am no longer captive 
to the consequences, to the wages of sin, namely death. I am no longer under the condemnation, under the wrath of God, but no, I am a welcomed, treasured, loved, privileged heir of Jesus Christ and all the riches that His death secured. If we are sons, as Paul says, then we are heirs through God. You start to feel the weight of Paul's logic, do you not? Why would you trade this for slavery? Why would you trade your status as privileged heirs of the riches of the maker and creator of this world for the conscription into slavery and bondage of the, what this world, what this earth, and its prince, Satan, promises? This is uh, foolish indeed. Verses 6 and 7 of our chapter detailed divine sonship, election, adoption, family relationships in Christ. But in contrast to this, we have the false teachers that Paul is referring to implicitly in this text. And they're like slave traders. They come back around and they make their pitch and they make their sales uh, and, they, and they pitch their sales uh, pitch, as it were, uh, to the church. And they say, you know, I, I've got a better deal for you. And in reality, what they are trying to do is to return these people who are children, uh, who have realized through the power of Paul's preaching the, what it means to be in Christ, that they are privileged sons of God, follow me and return to the auction block and be sold once again back under the law into the bondage of sin, follow them back to the auction block of works enabled or works supplemented or enhanced salvation. Non-sons are slaves. Turn with me to Romans 6.16. What does it mean to be a slave to sin? It's very simple in Paul's logic. He is referring to a concept he has used before in his address to another church. This, of course, is the church in Rome. Uh, We see in verse 15 these words, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Then Paul explains verse 16, Do you not know? that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. Again, you are the slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. Obedience which leads to righteousness, this kind of slavery is joyous. It is amazing. This is the kind of relationship that mere slavery can't describe. It goes much further. Although we are bound to the Lord, although we are to be obedient to Him, He is our Father, and we are His children. And we are slaves to Him in the same way that a beloved son or daughter is enslaved to us. There is this unbreakable bond. There is an authority. There is a hierarchy there, but it is one of compassion, of enabling, of resources, of transferring to them our knowledge and our inheritance, our means, and what we have by way of riches to the next generation to equip, to help, to enable, and to establish them in their life. This is the relationship of a good parent to a son or daughter. And this is eclipsed by exponential, uh, by, uh, by just exponential degree and our relationship with the Lord. Nevertheless, this human connection gives us something of the ability to understand our relationship with the Lord. He is our Abba. He is our Father. And in Him, we are no longer slaves to sin, but sons and daughters 
through God. Suffice it to say that Paul's main point is that you are a slave to whoever you obey. There are many who think that Christianity um, takes all the fun out of life and is nothing but a set of rules which restrict our liberties and is something that does not allow us all the joys that the peddlers of convenience and self uh, and self aggrandizement and self-sufficiency and, uh, and self-indulgence have to offer around us. But these, this is just a thinly veiled advertising veneer on a conscription, a bondage uh, into slavery. If we buy the message of the world that come and enjoy all that sin has to offer, what we will soon find as th- is that this promise comes with chains around our neck, around our hands, and around our feet. And we're chained in this line, as it were, heading to a hellish end because in our idolatry, idolatry, we have submitted to Satan, to the, uh, the spirit of the age, and to the popular opinion of our culture. And we have now declared our allegiance and made known our obedience to a tyrannical master of self-exaltation and the spirit of the age. Paul's message is, non-sons are slaves, do not trade the covenant love of adoption and sonship for the hell-bent, for hell-bent conscription to sinful masters. Again, Paul's principled argument and appeal, all alternatives are, self, uh, are a delusion, the self-sovereignty delusion as it were, Notice again in verse 8, the second half, he says, You were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. So in other words, people that are tempted to leave the assurance and ground of their faith as sons and daughters in Christ and that truth of the gospel and to reconscript themselves into slavery for the promises of sin, what they don't realize is these principles, what the world tells you is desirable and true, uh, these ideas, these concepts of, the, of deity, this way of thinking, this way of life, this worldview is no God at all. It is worthless and valueless. There is no power, there is no authority, there is no hope, there is no real salvation, there is no ultimate joy in following this way. Gospel alternatives are pure delusion. By nature, they are not gods. The Bible presents to us a coherent and consistent monotheism. Uh, Young people, anyone know what monotheism means? Monotheism. There is only... There is only one God. Right, I got a question for the adults, a little more more difficult, less common word. Henotheism. Does anyone know what henotheism is? Well, it's like a modified or qualified uh, monotheism. It means that there's one God for a particular people, for a particular culture, for a particular time or a region. Some have said that the Bible is a development. This is a false notion. It's a Darwinism imposed upon the study of Scripture. Some have said that the Bible represents a developmental hypothesis that first man believed in polytheism, many gods. Then they moved to henotheism, you know, one god for this culture or that. And then at some point uh, in the Bible, they affirmed this notion of monotheism. Nothing could be farther from the truth. From the very beginning, there was nothing until the one God spoke it into being. There is only one God. The Bible is coherent and consistent 
with its claim and with its, uh, re- and its proclamation of the ultimate truth that there is no such thing, ultimately speaking, as lesser gods, competing authorities, other forms of truth, other ways of salvation, other hope, any other door, any way, any truth, any life, apart from Christ alone, the second person of the Trinity, one God and three persons, is no God at all. It is a delusion. Today we exalt self-sovereignty. Each man can be his own God, the cult- our culture tells us. This is the promise of liberty, the false one, that the heretics of our day put forth. Self-sovereignty is a delusion. You are not your own God. You are not the captain of your destiny. You are not autonomous. You do not have ultimate authority. You cannot control your future, such as you might think, and such as the devil lied to Adam and Eve at the very beginning. No, these are absolutely foolhardy ideas. I have an illustration to help emphasize this. How many Lego fans do we have in the house today? Anybody like Legos? Awesome. All right, so who's heard of Ninjago? Anyone with kids under 10? Uh, How could you not? So Ninjago is this mythical storyline that the Lego geniuses have put forth to make us parents parents, uh, spend a lot of money on toys along these themes and so forth. Well, my daughter's almost three, Fiona. She jumped up in my lap the other day. I was holding my uh, little uh, uh, Sebastian, 10 months, and she said, uh, Dad, you are Kai, uh, Sebastian is Jay, and I'm Nia. Anyone know who those guys are? So they're, yeah, ninjas, are they ninjas? Oh, yeah, okay, so anyways, yeah, there you go, all of that. So in the, good job, got it. So Lego Universe, you have these three characters. Very good. Master of Ice, Fire, and Water. So my daughter was playing make-believe. She, she was assigning to me the identity of Jay or whatever. I'm probably already mixing it up. And Sebastian, Kai, and she was Nia, the, one of the girl ninjas. And uh, later, as we were just talking, and she's making three-year-old small talk, almost three, um, I, she's like, she said, called Sebastian by his you know, given name, Sebastian. I was like, well, I thought he was Kai. And she's like, no, Sebastian is Kai. In other words, my three-year-old is smarter than many pagans. She knows the difference between make-believe and truth. She had assigned an identity to Sebastian, but really she knew that it was just for pretend. Uh, have any of your kids ever lined up the toy soldiers or the Lego guys in a little you know, line and, and they kind of talk through what they're playing? Uh, we've all seen that or experienced that, maybe even remember that. What we're doing is creating a universe in our head and these little, and we are sovereign, the sovereign of our universe, and these little, uh, you know, figures, we have control over them, and in our imagination, we invent situations, and we play out this whole scenario in, our, in, in, the, in what we call make-believe. Well, I'm here to tell you that that is a perfect illustration of what many adults do. The only difference is, when adults play make-believe, it's even more delusional. They lose the reasoning even of a three-year-old to distinguish between real life as God has proclaimed it and established it and what they deem as authoritative, helpful, hopeful, truth, and so forth, their gods. Remember, who is your God? Whoever you obey. And adults will willy-nilly obey all kinds of false gods. They will chase after the promise of riches. They will give themselves 
to their career path. They will get involved with Eastern mysticism. They will listen to all kinds of new and improved quote-unquote philosophy. They will throw themselves into higher academia in their teens and 20s and consider their professors and scientists the ultimate arbiters of truth, where we came from, where we're going, and what is valuable, what is powerful, and on and on. They will tune on their radio stations to the experts and the pundits and the cultural voices, they will listen to the movies, they will adopt the norms, they will follow their favorite TV shows, and on and on it goes. When we do these things, when we engage in this kind of elemental principle of the world interaction, what are we doing? We are playing with our figurines as if we are a god, our little figures, our little Lego guys, but it's even more delusional. Make-believe becomes idolatry in the heart of man, and Paul is saying that you are enslaved to these idols, and they by nature are not gods. Repent of your delusion, realize your foolishness, and turn to the only powerful and valuable hope, that is, your adoption through Christ your Lord, whereby God is your Father, He is your Master and Lord, His Word, you hang on His every word, and you are His Son, you submit to His discipline, you obey Him, you consider His law preeminent. It is not up for negotiation, for change, or for objection from any of these fake little idols that are popular today. Self-sovereignty is a utter delusion. Thirdly, Paul argues from the nature of faith. Notice in verse 9, But now you have come to know God, so reminding uh, just to remind us, you are enslaved to those who, are by, who by nature are not gods. This was their former state. But now, speaking to them as believers, now you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? The nature of faith is this, that you... Saint in this room, if you confess Christ as your Savior and Lord, have come to know God, or rather, that is more precisely, to be known by God. Why did you choose the Lord? You didn't choose Him because you were sovereign and it was the best decision and you were persuaded by the evidence, ultimately speaking. You chose Him because He first chose you. This is a relationship, again, of sonship through adoption. A parent goes and chooses their adopted son and daughter. That adopted son and daughter, when they realize the love and the care and this step that their parents have taken, they will uh, likely, and as that relationship uh, develops and blossoms, will embrace their parents and so forth. And it's this beautiful picture. This is the nature of the relationship between us and the Lord. Later, Paul says, I am perplexed about you. Last verse in our text today, I wish I could be present now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Why is Paul perplexed? Because these people had forgotten that they were chosen by God, and now they were acting as if they could choose their own God. They're acting as if they were free to adjust, to manipulate, to seek, and to alter, and to uh, listen to other voices outside of the exclusive authority and truth of the Word of God to basically make a customized version of their Christianity and their faith. And Paul's saying, don't you know you had nothing to do with this in the first place? Now you're acting as if you have the authority and ability to define or redefine or adjust or manipulate or customize the gospel? No, 
This is not the nature of your relationship with the Lord. The only reason you chose Him is because He chose you in the first place. You are His son and daughter through adoption, a sovereign work of grace on His part. This is the nature of your faith. Therefore, what you are doing by entertaining other voices, other authorities, other not-gods, as it were, is delusional. It is not in accordance with the nature of true faith. True believers are ultimately chosen and elected by God so that uh, so their presumptions, uh, their presumptions of you know being able to be free uh, to choose and to pick and to sort and so forth and to entertain other ideas outside of the Word of God uh, is a fundamental denial of the gospel of the nature of things. These principles of the world would prove in the end, uh, if people continued to follow them, that those who once confessed Christ were only impostors. In other words, as the trials and tests of life come and they uh, really get to the heart and soul of the believer, trying the metal of their faith, those who are adopted, those who are truly the Lord's, in the end, they will fall back on that ground and that assurance. But there are others, Jesus describes them by way of parable, whose roots will hit stones and they will grow up, they will show a promise at first, but then they will wither. And those stones beneath the soil, as it were, are the elementary principles of the world. They are the claims, the promises, and the tempting appeal of the false gods, of other competing ideas. But in the end, they are proven weak and worthless and only kill real true growth and show that the seed was not planted ultimately on the fertile soil. Final argument, under principled argument and appeal, Paul argues from the nature of the alternative, and this is an expansion on these adjectives that he uses to describe alternatives to the gospel. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? This, uh, Paul uh, is drawing to the attention of the Galatian church the abject absurdity of the world's ways and means. When he says that the elementary principles of the world are weak, this comes in context, uh, in context, contrasting to the power and the value of the gospel, namely power. We let, consider in verse four of Galatians four. This is the power of our gospel. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. When is the fullness of time? That is the perfect moment in God-designed history, whereby in His sovereignty He intervened. God, the second person of the Trinity, in His eternal glory, Jesus Christ, set aside or veiled, better said, for a moment in time, His prerogative on the throne of glory, stooped low, entered this earth, took on flesh, was born of a virgin, and, and suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, buried, resurrected, all the while proclaiming the nature of the kingdom of God and demonstrating the power of God to save sinners through His mighty work, of the defeat of Satan and the grave when the stone was rolled away, his body was resurrected and he was lifted up to, up to heaven to return and to uh, assume the rule and reign at the right hand of the Father according to Daniel 7 where he is given as an inheritance, lordship, kingship over every nation that ever was and ever will be. Is this not power? This is the power of God. God in the fullness of time sending forth his Son, and His Son, verse 5, would redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Those who were spiritually dead to rights, 
those who are haters of God, those who are under the wrath of God in our sin, have been miraculously resurrected with Him because we who were once dead in our trespasses and sins have now been made alive in Jesus Christ our Lord. And if you are a believer in this room, there was a moment in your life, in your heart, in your confession, in your soul, where suddenly you knew that God was your Father, that Jesus Christ was your Savior, and that you were a new man, a new woman in Him. This is the power of the gospel, resurrection power, more powerful than the grave, more powerful than this earth and these riches. Paul goes on to say are beyond comprehension as well. Not only is the worldly elementary principles of the world so weak in comparison to the power that I just described, but their value cannot compare either. It is but dung, Paul says in another place, Philippians 3, compared to the riches of what we have in the Lord. After all, he says in verse 7, you are no longer a slave but a son, and as a son, then an heir through God. What does God own? What is the estate of Jesus Christ? What riches, what inheritance might we expect upon His death when that is transferred to our account? What are the promises of the heirs of Abraham's covenant fortunes? Oh, brothers and sisters, they are beyond compare. We read of them last week in Revelation 21. When John sees that city four square descending as a bride from heaven prepared for those who love him and have been loved by him, and the streets are paved with gold, it sits on 12 foundation stones of pure uh, jewels. Each gate of the 12 is a massive pearl. This communicating to us the matchless wealth and glory and riches, the prosperity that we have in our future, the glories of Christ revealed and fulfilled upon the fullness of His work consummated in heaven to come. The future riches in store for those in Christ, as we join the countless offspring, are housed and are secure for us in the heavenly city. These riches of future glory procured by the most precious price of all, Jesus shed blood and assured to us by His resurrection and His ascension. What can compare to this valuable inheritance? Nothing. How can you turn again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? You really want to be a slave again? Do you remember the children of Israel? They were wandering through uh, the wilderness. And yes, their journey was difficult. But the promised land was on the horizon, so to speak. And there they would have the bounty of untold you know, riches, milk, honey. The land was flowing with these things. Later, we see testimony of grapes larger than we can imagine. And the place was overflowing with the promises of God's prepared place for His people in His due time. But the people, at a certain point, they grew delusional. And they said, in their wilderness wandering, at least we had leeks and onions and food in Egypt. I'm getting sick and tired of this sovereign meal of manna. Let's go back. Let's be slaves again. And here... Similarly, in Galatians, the people of God were turning from the once-for-all faith delivered to the saints. They were not contending for the truth as they ought. They had forgotten the faith alone through Christ alone gospel. And so, they were tempted with the slavery of the old way. I can contribute to my salvation. There's something I can do. There's other ways besides what God has stated for me to reinforce uh, my life and my spirituality. No. These things are weak and worthless. And so Paul makes his argument 
on these logical grounds. He says in verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. In short, they were trading Christ for a calendar. They were trading Christ for a calendar. Here's something to do on this day. Here's a schedule for your piety. Here's a day planner for your new religion. You observe days, months, seasons, and years. But what? Are you trading Christ for a calendar? Shame on you. Second major portion of our text today. Paul's rebuke is personal as well. He not only makes this case from principles in the gospel with (coughs) unassailable argumentation, but he also gives this personal entreaty, this plea, this appeal, appeal through tears, as it were. You can hear it in his tone. Even verse 11, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Later on, verse 19, as we said, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. No one calls someone my little children without no one, uh, sincerely without having a strong love, care, concern, connection, self-sacrificial uh, love for them, even as Christ laid down His life for the church. And this was the model of the love that Paul was demonstrating. He says, I wish I could be present with you and change my tone, for I am perplexed by you. Paul gives them this personal treaty, entreaty. Now, there, these phrases they seem to come from an overflow of emotion, and they can be hard to follow exactly what he means. So let me very quickly give you a phrase-by-phrase exegesis of what may be the ones that are more difficult to understand. Notice in verse 12, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am. What does Paul mean here? I believe he's encouraging the Galatian church to join him in no longer being captive to the law. Paul says in Philippians 3, he was once a Hebrew of Hebrews. He had thrown himself in to the culture and the technicalities of law-keeping as a hope for salvation. But what did he do? He counted that loss for Christ. In fact, let's just read that portion because I think it is a great cross-reference. Turn to Philippians 3. Philippians 3, verse 2, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Who are the dogs and the evildoers? Well, in the case of writing, you know, the occasion of writing to the church of Philippi, similar to Galatians, these were the false teachers, those who would preach another gospel, proclaim another truth. They are dogs, they are evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Who are they? Those are the ones who say that circumcision is necessary, a prerequisite for salvation, a work of the flesh, as it were, in order to earn or establish or add to the work of Christ. Verse 3, for we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory in, and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then this was what Paul could boast in if he considered his credentials, his fleshly pedigree as it were, his human aspirations and accomplishments, if he considered them valuable. He was, verse 5, circumcised in the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, of the he- a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, persecutor of the church, as to righteous under, righteousness under the law, blameless, and so on and so forth. But something changed in Paul's assess- self-assessment. Verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth 
of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul says, become as I am, to count whatever you considered valuable before, but lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ your Lord. For I also, back in verse 12, Galatians 4, for I also have become as you are. What does Paul mean here? Well, I believe he is indicating that he has crossed that Jew-Gentile barrier. He is no longer hiding uh, in his comfort zone as a Pharisee of Hebrews of Hebrews and so forth among the elite status of his ethnicity as a Jew. But he has crossed that boundary and he's brought the gospel to the pagans as it were. He has set aside his ethnic identity to become, as it were, uh, a Gentile in some sense to bring them the truth. That is to enter into communication with them, to speak their language, to sit down at meals with them, to explain in terms that they could understand hope for salvation. He has made himself available across the boundaries of the the Jew-Gentile divide to bring them the gospel. Then he says, verse 13, You know it was because of a body ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And I think here what we see is a providential hardship. In other words, Paul stayed in this location because this bodily sickness prevented his travel. So as God's sovereignty would have it, the limitations of his situation, he figured, well, I'll stay here and proclaim the gospel. And so he did. And then what strikes me is the fourth phrase that might need some clarity, verse 15. What then has become of the blessing you felt? So you valued this input of mine at the beginning. You considered that it was the truth that you had heard the gospel, and so you repented of your sin. You placed faith in Christ alone. This was the blessing that you felt in the beginning. What's happened? What's changed? Do you realize the situation you're in? Verse 17, they make much of you. What is this? They make much of you. That is, through flattery and manipulation, the false teachers are puffing up. They are catering to the desires, the fleshly desires, the sinful preferences of the Galatians. They, meaning the dogs, the evildoers, the false teachers, they make much of you. Through flattery, they are manipulating and tempting you to a different gospel. He says they want to shut you out. What does that mean? Well, to shut you out would be to shut you out from the faith alone through Christ alone gospel. In other words, to shut you out of that camp of true gospel understanding unto adopting their teaching uh, according to their false gospel and so forth. Then he says, "You may make that you may make much of them. And this speaks to the motivation of these teachers. These false teachers wanted the Galatians to esteem their authority as superior to the apostles, those who are anointed and equipped by Christ Himself to bring the message of the truth. If they were to follow these men, they would make much of them, and they would esteem the authority, again, of the dogs, evildoers, and false teachers over that of the Apostle Paul. And then finally, it is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. If you wanted to study a good cross-reference, perhaps 1 Thessalonians 1, 2-9, through 9, this is a good kind of making much of. It is complimentary encouragement, which Paul often does. He's like, I am so encouraged by your faithfulness in the Lord, by your love for the saints, by your sacrificial giving. You gave out of your lack, he said of the Macedonian church, so on and so forth. And so there is a good kind of encouragement and building up, 
And there's a manipulative kind of flattery. And uh, so learn, discern the difference, Galatians, so that you may not become captive to the slave drivers of law preaching. Paul, uh, so Paul gives his full disclosure of his newness, of the newness of his situation in Christ. He speaks of his body ailment, which some have correlated with perhaps his thorn in the flesh, 2 Corinthians 12.7. And we see kind of a phrase-by-phrase exegesis of this personal entreaty. And then Paul reinforces two things implicitly again, the worth of the gospel and the strength of the gospel. Getting back to our main thrust today, the power and priceless nature of the truth. Notice, though Paul was quite a pitiful presentation and speaker to them at the beginning, he says, I, uh, you did me no wrong. You know that it was because of a body ailment that I preached to you the gospel at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. And the situation was so significant uh, that a phrase that might indicate this is, Paul says, For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. That leads us to think that perhaps Paul had a debilitating eye condition and that perhaps these people loved what he had to say and appreciated his ministry so much, if they could, they would have served as an organ donor, given him their own eyeballs, only that he might continue to share this precious, powerful, valuable truth of the gospel. Do you see there was a point in the Galatians' testimony where they didn't care if the guy preaching in front of them had his eyes glazed over and encrusted with some chronic disease or malady. They didn't care if their preacher looked like a leper because they knew that what he proclaimed was so powerful and so valuable, they hung on every word, and if they could, they would have given their own organs to equip him to continue to share with them that which their soul's eternal uh, salvation hung upon It's every word, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ. The worth of the gospel was illustrated by the Galatians' initial response. In spite of Paul's pitiful physical condition, they considered him on par with the angels of heaven. They received his message of truth as if they were listening to Christ Jesus himself. You received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. But now Paul is perplexed. Why? Well, this gets all the way back to chapter 1. It's a reference to angels here. 1 verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. So here you have it. Two uh, uh, presenters, two uh, people seeking to influence this church. On the one hand, you have a faithful gospel proclaimer with oozing sores, let's say. On the other hand, you have a polished orator who has a command of the persuasive rhetorical language, the presence and looks and whatever that you could imagine. And which one will you follow? Which one will you listen to? Well, it depends what you value. If you value the power of persuasion and personality and good looks and charisma, then you will consider this guy over here an angel sent from heaven. But if you value the message, the power to save you from sin, eternal hope found in Christ Jesus, even though this man over here is frail 
And in this physical, pitiful condition, you will hang on His every word. You see, this is the difference. The worth of the gospel is illustrated in the fact that in spite of Paul's physical limitations, they considered him a voice from heaven, and they hung on the beauty, the quality, and value of the gospel message. Also, the strength of the gospel is illustrated by his condition. Paul was no strong, powerful, capable, magnanimous leader who could rally a zealot movement around him. No, not with eyes oozing from this disease or whatever it was. Not when he was hated and scorned and abandoned and despised by those, the religious elite and the government officials spending most of his life on the run, shipwrecked, famine, sword, beaten, imprisoned, stoned, etc. Paul was not an impressive person by the ways that humans measure importance and uh, ability and strength and so forth. Paul would have failed the leader test, as it were, or the qualifications of a good leader by most metrics out there these days and then. But what does this illustrate? It illustrates that the strength was in the message, not the messenger. This was illustrated by his weakened condition. Given his obvious physical limitations, given his frailty, the persuasive power was obviously did not rest with Paul, but in the power of what he proclaimed. Turn back once more to Romans chapter 1. Never forget this, saints. Never forget where the source and the power truly is. Romans 1.16, Paul says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. You might know this verse by heart. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the real source, the real power. This is why Paul could preach in spite of this uh, obvious physical condition without shame. He could stand uh, in suffering before this body of believers in Galatia and preach with confidence and boldness because the power was not in him, his ability, his, per, his uh, capacity to persuade uh, or his chariz- charisma personality or anything like that. No, the power of God for salvation was in the message, in the gospel itself, and that gospel was extended to the Jews and to the Galatians, to the Greeks. And for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. This is Paul's point. This is his personal appeal. Something has changed, church, he says. That which you used to consider powerful and valuable, now you put by the wayside. You've substituted that which is no gods, these uh, people who are skilled in rhetoric and maybe good-looking and maybe uh, good flattering uh, speakers and so forth, suddenly you're listening to them more than the authoritative word of God through the commissioned and sent apostles of Jesus Christ. What is going on? I'm perplexed. Something is askew. You have lost the source, the grounding, the power, and the value is in the gospel. Have you forgotten this? What are you doing? You're turning back to the weak and worthless elementary principles. You want to be slaves again to that which those who are not even gods? You are sons. Your daughters, your heirs of the riches of Jesus Christ. The Spirit of His Son has been, has, sent, has been sent into your hearts whereby the truly saved cry out, Abba, Father. So the rebuke of Paul comes in two parts. This principled argument, this personal appeal. Are we hearing His words today? Let me close with a couple questions for you. 
do we receive the Word of God as from Christ Himself. We have the Word of God right here. There was a time when those in Galatia received the words of Paul, which was the Word of God for them at the time. That was the means of grace that God had deployed, the authoritative proclamation and preaching of His apostles. They received Him as an angel that is a messenger of God, as if they were hearing, because they were, the words of Christ Jesus through His servant. Do you receive the Word of Christ through His Word? When you read the Scriptures, when you hear them proclaimed in your ears, do you take them as the Word of Christ? Have we come to despise or to dismiss by any degree the means of grace? Have we grown weary in well-doing? Have we taken too lightly the privilege of the fellowship of the beloved, the assembling of the saints, the preaching of His Word, the meditation of the Scriptures, the memorizing and applying and living out according to His instructions, the way we ought to worship Him in light of His great gospel? Are we easily led captive these days by persuasive and flashy ideas, by personalities who distract us from the foundation of our hope in Christ? Or do we have discernment for our brothers and sisters who may be captive to the flattery of the dogs, the evildoers, the false teachers of our day? And do we lovingly bring them the rebuke as God gives us the opportunity to plead with them on the ground of their adoption relationship, to return to the faith alone in Christ alone gospel that will not suffer any compromise. Don't be slaves. Remember your position as adopted sons and daughters. Remember the power and the value is in the true gospel. Are we drawn in by the novelty of some new and improved quote-unquote teaching? Are we drawn in by the novelty of new things and thereby led astray from the tried and true? Have we ever assumed spiritual growth in someone only to realize that they need the gospel from square one based on the lack of fruit in their life. You ever assume spiritual growth in someone, but then as the fruit unfolds in their life, you realize, I'm perplexed, what's going on? I thought that they had realized the power and value of the gospel. What do they need? They need the gospel in the first place, as it were. Paul was faithful to do this. He did it with pain in his, in his tone. He did it with tears in his eyes. He did it with anguish in his heart. He did it with intensity in his zeal and attitude toward the church, but these were good things, modeling for us how serious the situation can be. Finally, this morning, saints, do we come to the Lord's table as to Christ Himself? This is a routine for us, but I pray that it would not become routine for us, if you will. Because at this table, the purpose is to remind us, that is, remember and proclaim what? The power and the value of Christ's broken body and Christ shed blood. When the Scriptures say to search your hearts to see if you are taking seriously the Lord's table, it is in part to assess whether your affections are in line, whether your knowledge value, your appreciation for the gospel is in line with what it truly is, the broken body and shed blood of Christ, which is your only hope. It's not just food for the stomach, as Paul said to the Corinthians. If you just want to eat, do it somewhere else. At the Lord's table, we realize food for our spiritual souls. This is the nourishment that our future, our eternity, our salvation depends on. And without the crucifixion of Christ our Lord, there is no hope eternal. There is no restoration of fellowship. The doors of Eden remain slammed shut and guarded with fiery sword 
in hands of cherubim from all who would like to see the relationship restored with the Lord. There is only one way. It is through Christ who bore the sword for us. Remember this at the Lord's table today. By way of reminder, the Lord's table is for believers. And if you are a believer and if you have searched your heart and realized the significance of these elements, then the table is open to you. At this time, I'll invite the worship team or whoever might play for us to come, and then we'll transition to communion. Let us pray as we do so. Father, we thank you for the gracious gift of your holy word. We thank you for the power and value of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would teach us and instruct us and sharpen our discernment to reject, to identify and to reject any imposter, and that we would return in our hearts and our affections and our confession and in the consistency of our life to the faith alone in Christ alone gospel that is represented at your table today. I pray that you would etch upon our souls through these means of grace today the reality, again, the power and preciousness of Christ's death for us. In his name we pray, amen.